You're listening to a sermon from Centerpoint Bathgate, available here each week. We hope you enjoy this talk and join us for more, either online or in person at Simpson Primary School Bathgate, any Sunday morning at half past ten. Good morning, church. Good to see you. Glad that you are along with us today at Centerpoint on this first Sunday in Advent. Hard to believe, at least for me, in my limited capacity, that Christmas is just over three weeks away. Now, I don't have little ones running around my house, and you might think, well, if you have kids, that they grow out of all of that anticipation at some point. Not that I have observed. Christmas anticipation still somehow breaks in, regardless of how old the people populating a house might be. Now, when you think about getting ready for Christmas and that anticipation and all the buildup, there are at least two kinds of people. There are people who wait to the last minute to do anything to get ready for Christmas. And these are the extremes. And they're just, you know, on the 23rd, start thinking, oh, we've got Christmas coming up in a couple of days. Whatever shall we do? But then there's the opposite extreme. There are people who start on Boxing Day getting ready for next year. The 26th, the flag goes down, and they start thinking about next year's Christmas. I read about a lady down south, somewhere down in England, and forgive my lack of English geography. There's so many places down there. I don't know them all, but she lives in a town down in England, and she starts on the 26th each year getting ready for the next year's Christmas. She's got a plan that she works every single month. There's something to get done. Now, in fairness, she has 11 kids, and 30 people show up at her house on Christmas Day. So there is a lot. Of, you can't just throw that together last minute. I, I, I get that point, but that's she plans for Christmas a long time. Now, Our big idea this morning is that the original Christmas was not an accident. It was something that God the Father had been planning for a very, very long time. Now, as we're going to be, as we are reflecting on the Christmas story from Matthew's gospel today and next week and over the next few weeks, um, this is one thing that we're going to see, God bringing together plans that he had initiated many years before. And today we're really going to reflect on just one verse. I have heard of a pastor once who did a multi-sermon series just on one word. Well, I'm not that bad, but today we are going to try to unpack just one verse, and it's the first verse in Matthew's gospel. Now, last week we ended the Old Testament uh, in this gospel series that we had been on with looking at Malachi, and I made the comment that after Malachi, there's a 450-year silence. Now, it doesn't mean that God's people sort of exited off the stage of planet Earth. No, they were still there and things were happening, but God was not speaking to his people. The very next thing that we have, we we turn, and this is 450 years later, and this is how Matthew breaks the silence after all these centuries. What's he going to say? What's going to be his big introduction? And this is what we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's it. That's the introduction. Now, on the surface, my default reaction to that is, Matthew, you can do better than that. Come on. 
give us some fireworks, give us something exciting. Now, I think that if we take a moment to unpack this, we're going to see that actually this is an incredibly exciting introduction because Matthew is making a point that in the birth of Jesus Christ, God is fulfilling things that he promised going back centuries, all the way back to David, a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, and all the way back to Abraham, 800 years before David. What God accomplishes in Christmas, he has been working on a very long time. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So I want to briefly go back and look at some of the promises that underpin these phrases. What does it mean that Jesus is the son of Abraham? What does it mean that Jesus is the son of David? And what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? So to go back to the son of Abraham, we go all the way back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 12, we have the calling, God's calling of Abraham. Um, Nahor, his or Terah, his father, had, had left Ur of the Chaldees and and then they settled, and now God was calling Abraham into this promised land. And this is what we read in chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. And I will bless those that bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, if you're Abraham, there's several good promises in there. And as you read through the story of Abraham, there are other promises that God made to Abraham. Abraham was an old man. He had an old wife. And yet God says, you're going to have a son. And you're going to call him Isaac. And it's, it's God fulfills this promise. And he does become a father. And he becomes father of nations. But there's this In verse 3 here, there's this remarkable bit of this promise that is something way beyond just an old man having a baby. Listen to what God tells Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here, 1,800 years before the birth of Jesus, 3,800 years ago, plus minus, God is making a promise to Abraham, I am going to bless all the families of the earth through you, through your seed. Now, even the promise to Abraham that he's going to inherit this land, he personally didn't get to experience that in his own life. You know, he lived there, but he was a sojourner, and they went down to Egypt and then came back after 430 years. And so some of the promises that God made to Abraham, he did not see in his life. This is one of those. Abraham did not see in his life all the families of the earth being blessed. This is only fulfilled through Christ. And so the big idea here is that God made a covenant. He made a promise to Abraham that was fulfilled in Christ. Now, when you hear a big promise like that, and one thing I love about Scottish people, you can tell by my accent, if you're new around here, you can tell by my accent, I'm not originally from the island. Now, I tell people when they ask me, so where are you from? I try to tell them, well, I was brought up in Paisley. And I got this accent because my mom made me watch American television when I was young. They don't believe me for some reason. But one thing I love about Scottish people is that 
Scottish folk don't need a whole lot of bells and whistles. That is, if somebody makes a promise too big to you, you are immediately incredulous. In the back of your mind, even if you don't verbalize it, you're thinking, yeah, right. Well, think about the promise that God made to Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. How are you supposed to react to that? Oh, okay, yeah, great, good promise. Here's the thing. Abraham actually believed God. When God made these ginormous promises, Abraham believed him. Faith, in its most simple definition, is simply acting like God is not a liar. Believe that what God has said is true. Do that, and you're going to have success in life. Abraham simply believed God. And so James writes, and reflecting on this episode in Abraham, says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and Abraham was called the friend of God. So this step of faith Abraham took, God counts that faith as righteousness, and because Abraham believes a promise, he's called a friend. Now, if you think about your friends, what is it? One of the essential ingredients in friendship is trust. And if you have a foundation of trust, what does that mean? That you believe what your friend tells you. It's very difficult to be friends with someone who consistently lies to you. Just You never know if what you're encountering from them is truth or not. How do you have a relationship with that? And so Abraham believes God, and he's called the friend of God. God looks at him and says, this man believes me. He's my friend. And so what we have when Matthew says that Jesus is the son of Abraham, first of all, he is the one, the seed of Abraham out of this line who's going to bring blessing to every family on the earth, all over the earth. Second, it's through Jesus that we can also become friends of God like Abraham. How do we do that? By believing the good news of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. Now, the second thing that Matthew writes is that Jesus is the son of David. And so we turn over to many places that we could go, but one I'm going to look at is in 2 Samuel. And here we have a promise also that God made to David. And this is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And God is speaking to David about things that are going to happen. Starting in verse 11, he says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you and who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So he starts talking about Solomon and his, the, the son that is going to become king after David. But then he goes on and looks way into the future, and this is what he says. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, in the world of audacious promises, this one is at least as audacious as through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed, to promise someone that their kingdom will be established forever is just bizarre. If you study world history, 
Anything that you can see is empires rise and empires fall. There has not yet been an empire that lasts forever. Any nation, any empire, they have a temporary shelf life on the scene of world history. And here God is telling David, your kingdom will be established forever. Your throne will be established forever. So when Matthew is calling Jesus the son of David, Matthew is saying that it is through Jesus that this promise to David is being fulfilled of kingship. And so not only through Jesus do we get friendship with God, but through Jesus we are brought into the kingdom of God and brought under his lordship. In other words, what we need from God is not just friendship. We need kingship. Yes, we need his friendship. We need God on our side, but we also need his authority in our lives. And so Abraham was the father of faith. And when we look back, Abraham is faith. Moses is law. David was king. Matthew was saying, Jesus fulfills this promise about faith that God made to Abraham and blessing, but he also fulfills this promise to David that he is the king will reign forever. And then the third promise, and this again is one that is woven all through the Old Testament, and we see especially prophetic glimpses of this in the first few chapters of Isaiah. There's so many rich passages that we we could go to, but I'm just going to look here in Isaiah chapter 11 because Matthew said, Jesus is the son of David, he's the son of Abraham, but he's also called Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of people think that Christ was Jesus' last name. Jesus' first name, Christ's last name. Hi, I'm Tom Jackson, and this is Jesus Christ. That's not it. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, and the Messiah was, in the Old Testament, this promised one who was going to, to come and deliver God's people. And there are lots of different promises and lots of different places that the Messiah was, was promised. The one that I'm going to read comes from Isaiah chapter 11. And this is so rich. I'm, I'm going to read the, the whole passage. The words will be here on the screen. And so we have Abraham, who was from where we stand about 3,800 years ago. Then we have David, who was about uh, 3,000 years ago. And then Isaiah is about 300 years after David. Um, so about 2,700 years ago. This is what Isaiah writes. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity the meek on the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play 
over the whole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, there is a lot of imagery packed into this passage and in several of these messianic passages in Isaiah where he's looking forward by the Spirit, gazing into the future and describing what the Messiah is going to be like. Now, it's promises like this that made it difficult for some of the religious leaders in Jesus' day to appreciate that Jesus was the Messiah because he was a different kind of Messiah than the one that they were expecting. Because the picture that's painted here is of a comprehensive peace and all evil has been destroyed and banished and... I mean, some of these pictures just scare me because of the, the world, fallen world that we live in, but the, the little child playing over the cobra hole. I'm like, no, get away, get away. That's bad. That's dangerous. But not in an utterly restored creation where evil has been utterly banished. And so there's some beautiful, beautiful pictures here. But one thing at the very end of this passage is remarkable. And all of this comes, it says, for, at the end of verse 9, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. One of the things that the Messiah does is to bring the knowledge of the Lord. Knowledge in a new way, knowledge in a deep way, knowledge in a profound way, knowledge that was previously inaccessible. Jesus himself describes his own ministry in these terms. In Matthew chapter 11, this is what Jesus said. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So some of these messianic promises are future and will only be revealed at the consummation of the kingdom of God when Jesus comes a second time. When Jesus came the first time, he inaugurated his kingdom. When Jesus comes a second time, his kingdom will be consummated. In between his first and second coming, we live in this land of the now and the not yet. One of the messianic promises that is being fulfilled is what Isaiah describes at in verse 9, what Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 11, the knowledge of the Lord. Now, does everyone on planet earth know the Father in, as the way that the waters cover the sea yet? No, not yet, but this is in process, and this is what Jesus does. As he says, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So part of what Jesus is doing is fulfilling this messianic promise made by Isaiah that the Messiah would come and bring the knowledge of the Lord. So as we think about these promises and many more that we could look at, in the context of Matthew chapter 1, we see that this very first Christmas wasn't just God reacting to a situation in first century Palestine and we got problems with the, with the Romans, so I'd better send a Savior. No, what happened through Jesus had been promised 700 years before, 1,000 years before, and 1,800 years before 
Jesus was ever born. In other words, this Christmas that's described here was a well-planned Christmas. It was the offer of friendship through faith. It was the offer of kingship through the authority of Jesus and the offer of salvation through Christ the Messiah. So just a few observations that we can make as we seek to allow God to come in and reorient our perspective first for just a, just a little bit is that the first Christmas was not accidental. It was very well planned. The second observation is this, that when we think about the ultimate Christmas gift of Jesus being described as son of Abraham, son of David, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, that's not necessarily what we want for Christmas. We probably might want something else. I don't know what was on your Christmas list this year. And so the truth is very simply that God hasn't necessarily given us what we wanted, but he has given us what we needed. Now, I'm not usually given to quoting Mick Jagger, but there's one song where I actually think he got it right. And he said this, you can't always get what you want, but sometimes if you try, you might find that you get what you need. And this is exactly the case with Christmas. In Christ, God has given us exactly what we need. What is it that we needed? Well, we needed God's friendship, and he's given that. We need God's authority. He's given that. We need God's salvation, and he has given that as the Messiah. The third observation, very simply, is that not only has God given us something that was planned a long time, he's given us something that will last a long time. Now, if you think back, for some of us who are a little bit older, about all the Christmas gifts you've gotten over your life, how many of those do you still have? How many of those are still in use? The truth is, a lot of the gifts that we want and get, they have a very limited shelf life. When I was seven years old, somehow I got captivated by this advert on the television about this, this styrofoam eagle named Zor. And I was fascinated. I had to have a Zor. And so I asked for a Zor for Christmas, and I got a Zor. Zor was great. Zor, at least on the advert and on the box, it said, he can climb, swoop, glide, and dive. Well, I found out, actually, he couldn't. I remember all the great excitement, putting Zor together right out of the box, throwing Zor together, putting him together, running out on the back deck, and it's the big moment. Zor has been assembled. Zor is in my hand. Zor is being launched. Zor is going to soar. Zor doesn't soar. Zor crashes to the ground and gets a discombobulated beak. Now, that was a great lesson for me that sometimes what we want isn't what we need, and sometimes what we want isn't going to last a long time. Not true with what God has given us in Christ. The friendship on offer through Christ is an eternal friendship. The authority of God's kingdom into which he brings us is an eternal kingdom. And the salvation that he accomplishes in our lives, the ultimate banishment of evil and deliverance from the bondage of sin, this is an eternal work. 
So what God has given us in Christ lasts forever. The promise of friendship, the invitation to step into his authority, and the salvation that he offers. Now, as we reflect on that, I think these these words of this amazing hymn by Charles Wesley that we sang earlier capture this in a very profound way. And I just want to read these words to us again, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. How long had Jesus been expected? A really long time. Going back to Genesis chapter 3 in the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Christmas is indeed well-planned because the Father at the right time gave us our long-expected Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. And in the midst of an age that's marked by temporariness, we are struck by the permanence and the stability and the continuity of what you give us in Christ. As Matthew reminds us that this wasn't some last-minute thought-up plan B, but you had been planning the birth of Jesus for a very long time. He's the son of Abraham, the one promised through whom you're going to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. He's the son of David, the one through whom you are establishing your kingdom. And he is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who ultimately banishes evil and brings the knowledge of God. Lord, we thank you for what you have given us in Christ. In this age of transience and in this season of distractedness, we pray that you would come by your Holy Spirit and help us understand and revel in, appreciate and adore what you have given us in Christ. Not necessarily what we wanted, but you've absolutely given us what we needed. And for that, we give you praise, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.